Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And, uh, man, we're still here in the fishbowl. I like it here. This is uh, <laughs> Norway, Oslo. Fun. But you know all about that. So We've been there. Let's We've done just that. cut the chit-chat and get right to business, shall we? Okay, what's the business of the jour? It's a little thing we call Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? Well, it, it, it's... Uh, a very interesting post on Stack Overflow. The title is, I am creating an email spammer for an outstanding cause. Huh. Listen to this. In Cuba, web access is extremely censored. So I created a tool that allows more than 50,000 people to browse the internet through email. Let me say that again. Browse the internet mm. through email. Oh, my goodness. Cubans send me an email with a URL in the subject line, and I email them back with the response. Which is the web page. Yes. Wow. Yeah. It was working like a charm till the communist government of Cuba started blocking my emails. Because that's what they do. <laughs> my solution was rotation. I started with Amazon SES, and I was changing the domain each time it was blocked. But Amazon adds a header to all emails, and once they blocked the header, no email from SES was able to reach Cuba uh. anymore. The same happened with Mailgun and others. They all add headers. Currently, I'm creating Gmail accounts and sending via SMTP, but Google blocks me for no reason and only allows to send 100 emails a day per account. Also, I can only create a few emails using the same IP or phone, right, IP address. So I was forced to use anonymous proxies and fake Chinese phones. <laughs> now I'm fighting a war on two fronts. An email can be blocked by three parameters, IP address, domain, and email address. It will be terrific if I can set up my own post-fix server at a VPS that auto-rotates the IP addresses. Even better if I can simulate gmail.com to avoid purchasing a new domain every day. <laughs> this is pure evil. I love it. All for a good cause. Though. For a good cause. All the intents to create what I call the ultimate sender just either reach the spam folder or add unwanted headers, making it too easy to block. I feel exhausted. I hit a knowledge barrier here. I know I'm crossing to the dark side, but this is for a very good cause. Thousands count on this service as their only source of unbiased news, social network, and to feel part of the 21st century. Can you please help me creating the ultimate sender? Blah, 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 blah. I just thought that was a really... There's a couple of really good answers here, too, interesting right? Interesting Like a, a, a Tor-based email server, that's, that's the solution. Yeah. You know, something that is fundamentally anonymized, and is, it creates basically a one-way email channel, but that's fine. They're only blocking the inbound, so right. that, there is a solution Tor to that. is called the onion router. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah and that's really where they want to go. So all you had to do is ask Richard Campbell. He's got <laughs> a hacking solution. I only read, Actually, you only I read the yeah, answer yeah. and went, yes, that's what I would do if, yeah. I, if I had to do it. I would not really think of it that quite that fast. No, no, sure. But isn't it interesting that you know, all of a sudden you're on the other side of security when you're trying to... Uh, there's a whole ethical discussion on this as well right, right, as right. in terms of, you know, are you, should be subverting, like, what is your responsibility here? Yeah, like, yeah. I think it's very interesting. It is. And I don't know that we want to go there today. No, 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 absolutely not. It's just something neat to think about on your commute to work. Yeah. Right. Spamming for a legitimate cause. Yeah, huh? exactly. That's what Which I Which is subverting a government. <laughs> yeah. Let's contemplate how legitimate that actually yeah, is. Yeah. So who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1268, the one we did with Jeremy Miller, talking about Martin on Postgres. Yeah. And that was the uh, the blob store, essentially. The smart blob store that uh, that Jeremy was helping to support that runs on Postgres. Lots yep. of good comments on this show. This particular one comes from David Prothero, who said, I'm worried about the claim that eventual consistency is a, quote, bad thing, and therefore Martin and Postgres are superior to Raven DB." I don't doubt at all that it is a superior solution for Jeremy's team and their use cases, but to cast eventual consistency as a universal drawback isn't appropriate. And just to recap a bit here, because this show is from like a year ago, we were talking about, there's been a lot of controversy around RavenDB as a very .NET-centric mm. document database versus Postgres, which is, you know, great open source product, and here's a document store in the form of Martin that can do a similar thing, and they have different approaches to it. And uh, uh, David did go on to say, Carl and Richard clearly understand the benefits of the eventual consistency approach in web scale applications, and we're pushing Jeremy to address these points, but I don't think he adequately addressed them. Because, of course, that's not the focus of what they're doing with, sure. with Postgres and Martin. Sure. 
Anyway, I'm skeptical that full ACID writes with all of your indexes being updated before the write returns to the user is a good solution for web scale transactional systems. It's also not really necessary, mm. right? Uh, and that's what RavenDB, Mongo, and other uh, document stores are designed for. For a modest scale line of business apps, I can definitely appreciate the best of both worlds approach by combining fully acid SQL with a JSON document database. I think Martin is a great idea and I will keep on watching this project for sure. Can't wait to see how it fares under more production scenarios. I was just a little concerned about the tone of the show and how apples will be compared to oranges. Mm. And I think that happens. You know, there's multiple solutions to any given problem. Uh, and not everybody has, you know, eventual consistency is not a panacea for anything either, right? Uh, and anybody working against a serious ACID database like Postgres or SQL Server, it's kind of hard to avoid the truth when it comes to writes. You're always going to run into that, and anytime you subvert that, you're going to have problems because there's so much presumption in the engine about that consistency that breaking it's just, you're like, you don't know the gremlins you're creating if you try and subvert it. Now, yeah. the eventual visibility of that data, having synchronous you know, writes, Maybe they even sit in a, in a pipeline of some kind, some kind of queuing system, so sure. you're delaying the write so that it can be synchronous. You're not going to see it for a while. Mm -hmm. I'm happier with that than I would be with subverting it. But if, you know, David makes the point. There are other data stores with other goals if that's what your architectural needs are. Yeah. So David, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. Please wait. Accessing. 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 Nope, I got nothing. <laughs> anyway, let's uh, introduce our guest today. <laughs> Steve Faulkner. He's the Director of Platform Engineering at Bustle, where he is championing all things serverless. And previously, he co-founded the streaming music startup Murphy. That's M-U-R-F-I-E. And he's uh, from Philadelphia, but he's here in Oslo today. Hi, Steve. How's it going? How's it going with you? Uh, good. I just got done with my talk. I'm feeling relieved. Oh, <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. You know, are you, but are you jazzed? You come out of that going, wow, I did a great job. It worked I, out. I hope so. The, um, the Norwegians yeah. can be hard to read sometimes, too. They're, they're a quiet bunch. Mm -hmm. Like things that have gotten uh, maybe some chuckles at every other conference I've presented at. Uh, not so much here. It's so, a little tougher. <laughs> so before today, I hadn't heard of GraphQL, and I went to graphql.org to try to figure out what this is. And, you know, after looking it over for five or ten minutes, I still can't figure it out. <laughs> uh, I, I get that it's a, a query language for, for, for discovering what your API does, but I'm not sure how I would use it or why I would even need to. So this is just a great open-ended question. What is this thing? All right, so GraphQL, it's an it's a API query language. It's a typed query language. So you specify things in terms of types and the fields that are available to them and yeah. things they can return, as well as relationships between those types. And it gives the ability for clients to then decide how they want to structure their queries and what kind of data they want back from the server. Um, you know, I, I honestly think it's very reminiscent of things like, you know, kind of Wisdle and SOAP. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's not that far off of that. It just happens to be the 2017 version so sponsored by Facebook. Fewer so, angle brackets. Yes. <laughs> so give me a, an example of when I would use this. I um, I'm was l working with the Google Drive API today, for example. And um, the documentation is what it is. I mean, it's very granular, it's atomic, and you don't really see how things work together. And unless you have a sample somewhere on some blog somehow or wiki or something, it's very difficult to actually jump in and figure things out unless you take in the whole API, uh, you know, piece by piece and then try to try to figure out how these things work together. Is, it, is this going to help me in that situation? Uh, if somebody writes their API in GraphQL, then yeah, it will. Um, so I think that's the, the beauty of it is that because of its typed nature, you can execute these what are called introspection queries against the API endpoint, which essentially says, tell me everything that you're capable of doing. So you can write your API using this language. Yep. Now, now I'm really, really confused. I know. Wouldn't I write an API in a in a language like C Sharp or? So you still write them in, and the runtime can still be whatever you want. Um, GraphQL itself is really just a spec for how the client and server are going to communicate with each other. Hmm. So GraphQL is uh, the 
server saying these are the types of things I provide and then a client as well saying these are the things that I am asking for and the client can submit types as well when you're sending data to the server you can say I'm submitting this uh, you know field and it's an integer and if somewhere in your code you end up submitting something that is not an integer it will actually get rejected by the server it will say hey you said you were gonna send me an integer and you sent me a string instead." right so you know sorry I don't even process this query and so how how would I go about using this? I mean, IntelliSense is the the thing that comes to mind, but it, that it goes it goes. This must go beyond just simply IntelliSense. It must be like, oh well, this particular server thing. This is how it gets called, and yeah. Uh, so the I mean, it's, it all happens at runtime, really, right? It's a way to okay. kind of statically analyze these queries, but at runtime, right? Um, the beautiful part about GraphQL is really there's this killer app and that's called Graphical. So Graph IQL. And that is their first class supported API browser, query builder, query executor. And it does those introspection queries. It actually will, you know, essentially proofread your queries. If you're writing queries in there, you can uh, see little squiggly under yeah, the lines. We're getting into details, and I still don't understand the big picture. And I'm sorry for, for so w why would I need a query, and what would I use it for? So this Give is me an example. This is just an essentially a, a replacement for REST APIs, right? This is Facebook saying, well, generic JSON REST APIs are not a good enough language with which to describe these client-server interactions. Okay. I can understand that. And so this is saying we're going to make something that is much more specific and typed in order to really get good language around API contracts. So good example. Uh, any JSON API, we use it at Bustle uh, for all of our front-end applications. So the front-end application says, I want the post uh, with this ID. I want all of the users associated with that post. I want the comments associated with that post. I want the image URL of all the users associated with those comments. And so you can make this single structured query that gives you all that back in the exact format you want. I see. So you're really not dealing with the guts of the the HTTP spec and bodies and responses and requests and all that, you're, you're just saying, this is what I want. Give yeah. me that. Yep. Okay. So the, the query language uh, is... Yeah, it's, 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 I think that just hit me in the brain. It clicked like now it, Yeah, now it clicked. It's, it's a single endpoint. So GraphQL is designed, you make a post to a server, um, yeah. and the body of that post is what looks kind of like JSON, but it's the GraphQL query language, right? right. It's very similar to JSON. And it's typed. It's typed, it's typed like and it turns into objects, and you just basically yep. use them. You get JSON back, but the idea with the query language is it's typed so that the server can reject or accept a query before right. it even has to execute it. Rather than what you normally see when you're dealing with untyped stuff, which is like, I don't know what you mean. Yeah. Not, not that you may, you know, and I hate that when you, here's 10 parameters. I got typed wrong on one of them, and a JSON responder just goes, nope. Yeah. <laughs> like, figure it out. <laughs> and yeah, you don't know what the problem was. And that, yeah. the error stuff, that's one of the best parts about GraphQL is it will tell you not only what part of your query is wrong, mm -hmm. it'll give you like the line and location and everything. It'll say this field. This value, I expected this and you gave me that. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, that's pretty powerful. It, the real power for me is that, you know, REST, REST is a great tool, but it's not specific enough, right? Mm -hmm. REST right. is, APIs are contracts between the f client and the server, and as far as contract languages go, REST is a pretty terrible one, yep. right? Um, <laughs> but the alternative was soap. <laughs> we're still, yeah, yeah no, the, the other end of the spectrum can get pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we went WS all, star specifications. <laughs> I'm getting hives, man, right so now. Like, I'm so suddenly you're, itchy. You're really <laughs> just wrapping all this stuff up in objects that are domain objects that we understand, right? Yes. It's that, that's basically what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and doing it in a way that you know just requires both the client and the server to be much more on the same page about right. what can be passed back and forth. Perfect. So trying to strike a balance between the huge amount of ceremony we got to in the late <laughs> 90s, yeah. early aughts, that was the WS star stuff, versus the hippy-dippy, send me whatever you want, <laughs> you know, Jason approach. Of, send me some stuff. If it goes well, you'll get something back. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's kind of the the general idea. You know, there there's multiple aspects of this. The types is just one part of mm -hmm. it. There's also the aspect of being able to give the client control over navigating through the graph of your data. Sure. Right. So the whole API is based around you know, like I said, being able to say, well, I, I have a post. I want the comments associated with that post. I want the user associated with all those sure. comments. So rather yeah, than yeah. making all these separate calls, I'm basically making a effectively manifesting a collective call, which 
somewhere on the back end may end up being a bunch of separate API calls. Somewhere. Exactly. And you okay. make it very easy for the consumer of that API just to get what they want and get yep. in and out without having, yeah. It, it gives the front-end developers a lot more freedom, but then it gives them a lot more um, independence as well, right? You yeah. also took the whole lot of mutability problems off my table as, as the developer on the back end, too. Yeah. It's like, I'm getting a transaction. I'm yeah. getting everything you need as a single call now yep. without having to build the do-everything function, yeah. Yeah. right? Like, right. I kind of like that. Yeah. It's, it's really nice. It's made development, specifically at Bustle, it's made our development process way better. I mean, humans are poor at communicating and documentation is hard to write. Yeah. And so <laughs> with, with GraphQL, we don't really have to spend a lot of time on either because the API itself generates its own documentation. Right. And, and, and a tool like GraphIQL lets you figure it out. Exactly. You just keep tinkering and playing with different... Uh, options until you see what you want and then you know what to take to your code. Yep. It's it's beautiful and it's on the back end it has a lot of advantages as well. I mean I'm a, I'm a back end developer okay. so I spend most of my time trying to figure out how we do stuff behind the GraphQL. Sure, layer. yeah. And, yeah. and I think we're going to have to probably talk about that part cuz you know, what does this look like for you as a backend developer? So the if you read one of Facebook's readmes on this, they actually just tell you why they built it, um, yeah. which is, the I think, a great quote. And it says, at the time, this is around 2010, mm -hmm. Facebook had a ton of, they used the phrase, sundry key value stores. <laughs> ah, sundry. Uh, sundry. Sundry nice. key value stores. Yeah. Data and stuff. Yeah. It's just a lot of different APIs. A lot of random things. A lot of different uh, databases. Mm -hmm. And they needed a way to just roll all that up into one place instead right. of having to make all these different calls. And so that's kind of where this project came from internally. Yeah, and you think about Microsoft Graph. I mean, it's the same idea. They have a one API that gets to all of the Windows-centric right. APIs. Yeah. yeah. They, they, well, you don't even want to know. And you don't want to break things when you are actually taking old code and moving it forward. Like, that's the fear when you start... This is all about aging systems, right? Mm. That we have many, many different layers to stuff, and maybe we're going to play some, maybe we don't. Maybe we're on the fourth or fifth version of an API, and nobody knows which one to call, even though we leave all the old ones up just in case. Right. You know, you, get, you eventually get into this morass of an infinite number of calls, and, and people really uncertain which one to do. It, it's very true, right? Um, I think that's one of the things about GraphQL that's nice, too, is you can add types kind of incrementally oh, yeah. into the system. So, you know, mm. I have a field that might be the field I'm using today, but I'll add a field later that might be the new and better field, and I can right. deprecate the old field. So there are ways to kind of incrementally move your API forward rather than just having to wholesale version yeah, it. One right? day, the call you used to make doesn't work anymore. You have to make the call that looks like this. Yeah. Mm. Or you keep the two versions up, and then you're running this endless code base that just keeps expanding. It, yeah, exactly, right? And and it, it forces those same uh, requirements on the back-end developer as well. So the, the types go both ways. If I have a type in GraphQL that I say is non-null, right. and I return null from the back-end you know, database right. response, it mm. will yell at me. It'll yell at you. It'll say... So you literally have an intermediary yeah. that's validating in both directions. Yeah. I kind of like that, too, yeah. right? It's right. a whole other class of error rather than waiting for the client to complain. You, you actually intercept it still effectively on the back end, but at an intermediary layer. Exactly. So you just piece these things together. Obviously, you start at this, the server side, I guess, and then um, and, and, and come up with a, uh, what, some sort of meta document that describes the relationships. Yeah, so GraphQL has a schema definition language. It's yeah. pretty simple, and uh, you can use that to essentially just generate these pretty simple back-end APIs. They're, the... There's server clients in a bunch of different languages. You know, .NET has one. The reference one is in JavaScript. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the one Facebook officially supports and sure. works on. But I see Ruby. I see Scala. I see Python. I see Java. Closure. My goodness. Go PHP. There's C Sharp. <laughs> All right. There's so. a bunch of them. And arguably, some of them are more advanced than the rest of the Elixir. Reference. Wow, yeah. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. So, yeah, map to iQueryable. There you go. All right. And yeah, you know what? You're just seeing the wonders of open source here. Yeah, These are different is. people's wonderful. efforts to support this underlying library so that they can work in the language they want to work in. Mm. I think that's one of the good things that Facebook did with this is they released it initially as a spec. Right. They said this is a, a language for talking between the client and the server, and this is the spec for it. Mm -hmm. And they released their reference implementation later. And that allowed everybody else to kind of be on the same page rather than having to just translate whatever they right. built. Right, and not, well, you know they're going to cut and paste Facebook's code if it's there. Yeah. Right, and so if you leave it open so they can explore for a little while first, you get, it, you get some variation on all of that, which is compelling. Yeah. Stephen, give us one second here to pay the bills.
This episode of .NET Rocks is made possible in part by Windows on the Google Cloud platform. What? Isn't this a .NET show? Yeah. .NET runs on the Google Cloud platform, man. Everything in .NET? You bet. All the .NET core libraries and more, including 200-plus Google.com and cloud services. Hey, John Skeet's behind it. He's a genius. The John Skeet? The Rescue the Princess John Skeet from Stack Overflow? <laughs> yeah, the one and only. You can deploy your ASP.NET Windows apps to Compute Engine or your ASP.NET Core apps to App Engine or Container Engine, which is Google's hosted Kubernetes environment, and it runs like, well, Google. But what about Visual Studio integration? Oh, it's there. I'm reading it now. You can use Visual Studio to manage your GCP resources and deploy your existing apps. Yep. You can get stack driver logging, error reporting, and tracing support for .NET and .NET Core. Also, there are PowerShell commandlets for GCP, which run on Windows and Linux. And if you need help, there are a great set of partners to get workloads to GCP, including Capgemini, Nudesic, and Magenic. So go to gcp.netrocks.com and get your free trial today. .NET on Google. Who knew? And you're listening to .NET Rocks. We're here at NDCs talking to Stephen Faulkner about GraphQL. Mm. And I got to tell you, off the bat, I was thinking, this is some kind of NoSQL database. But it's more important to that, I think. It, it definitely is. It's, you know, it's at a higher level. Um, it certainly pairs well with NoSQL databases. Sure. That was part of the initial use case. But there are people that are doing some really cool things to turn GraphQL queries actually into SQL queries under the hood. Oh, wow. Yeah, I could see how you could get really nutty with that. It's... It's something that I think is still, for a lot of people, in the proof of concept phase. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And I've seen some exciting stuff, but I don't really know if people are doing it in production quite yet. Well, I, I don't have a whole lot of problem with this. Like, this is easy when you're talking about trying to consume data, yeah. where it's like, I want this customer's information and their credit history and the last 10 orders they sent, like all of these different requests that would normally be separate calls, mm -hmm. to be able to bundle that up in a, in a, a blob of text, essentially, and, and push it up and know you're going to get it all back. Yeah. But going the other way... Well, here's a whole bunch of data I want you to store, figure out where it should go. So this is one of the, I think, problems with GraphQL. Maybe not a problem, but it's mm -hmm. a little bit of a rough patch. Challenge. Uh, so GraphQL has the ability, it, they have this affordance called mutations, okay. and it allows you to mutate data back to the server. <laughs> uh, in my honest opinion, it, it feels a little bit like it was just kind of slapped on. So I, I A little I, too mutant for you? Is sort of like is? a, a one-stop one shop, fix it all, and ask questions later. I don't know how this went down at Facebook internally at all. I wasn't involved. <laughs> but I don't know at, what they were thinking. But. It looks like they had this great way of querying data and somebody was like, well, we have all this stuff and servers and things and we're why can't we just write data with that same thing? Sure. And people were like, yeah, you know, it'd be easier just to do all that. And so they did. And, and there's definitely some challenges around how you do that. It's possible. It's not impossible to do it, but there's Facebook has uh, released some other open source projects that uh, you probably just want to use. That's one a better way to do this. Right. Well, uh, one of them being Relay. So Relay is a client uh, that kind of handles the mutations and the state and properly updating uh, the server. Yeah, because mm -hmm. that's a big problem. It, I mean, it, it's a big challenge. It's a big it challenge to do. Caching. That. It handles like some partial refetching of data. And there's its own. There's a Relay has its own spec that is separate from the GraphQL spec and essentially is a document that says, okay, GraphQL allows you to do all these things. You should really use it in this way. Right. Especially yeah. for mutations. And that's right. what the relay spec is about. Okay. Well, and I think it's totally acceptable to say that GraphQL is a querying language. It's for fetching data and you write data a different way. It's something that we've done at Bustle and we've had pretty good luck with, but we've mostly moved over to mutations because even though I ragged on them a little bit, they work. They're fine. Sure. And you do get some benefits. The type safety is something that is really nice. Yeah, that's sure. also available in all the mutations. Hmm. Um, how careful do you have to be with naming, considering how little data we're effectively expressing here? Like, as soon as you start talking about making calls across what would effectively be many APIs, if you start having property names that match to multiple APIs, you could get into trouble. That's one of the things that the, the types kind of help you with is you yeah. have multiple types can each have their own property names. And right. There can be the same property names amongst those. So, you know, spaces? In, is there a namespace idea? Um, there's a way for the client to actually change the name of something that's getting returned. Mm. So it might request the comments associated with a post mm. from the server. 
but it can rename that uh, at query time to something else, and the server will return it with a different name. Okay. So mm. that's part of the query language. So there is some control from the client there to say, well, I know what you're going to give me back, and I actually want to munge it a little bit so right. I can get I, I want to organize it differently. That's okay. Yeah. That's so good. Kind of intentional. Yeah. So, um, so what are some of the challenges of working with, of, uh, with, working with GraphQL? It's, it's new, yeah. right? I mean, it's been around Facebook for a while, but it's been open source for you know, only a couple of years now. Mm -hmm. mm. I think there's still a lot of stuff that people are trying to figure out. Uh, mutations are a little bit a part of that. Right. What's the best way to do this? Best practices. Uh, there's some things that GraphQL will not do for you out of the box that you are going to need. One of them is authorization on authentication. Uh -huh. right? That's handled completely externally, externally right now. Mm. There's no built-in affordance for that. At Bustle, we've actually extended the built-in, the kind of reference implementation to include some aspects of authorization. Obviously, some the authentication is easy. Just SSL, typical handshake. Like, yeah, the authentication is not the hard part. It's what privileges do I have? What APIs mm -hmm. am I allowed to call? Mm -hmm. Exactly. There, you know, you look at data, and you can imagine I can look at my own email, but mm -hmm. I can't look at some other user's sure. email. So. I can't statically analyze a query. I have to do a runtime check to see is the user I'm looking at me or is it somebody right. else? What context are we in here? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so there is there is some static analysis you can do, and we've done a little bit of that at Bustle, and that's something that I hope eventually makes it into GraphQL. Mm -hmm. But at some point, you have to do some runtime checks to say, is this data really something the user's authorized to look at? Sure. So what does Bustle do? Mention them a couple of times. So Bustle essentially takes uh, the reference implementation and then wraps every single resolver, which the resolver is a concept on the back end in GraphQL. It says, how do I get this data, right? It's just a function that yeah. you know, re it returns the data to the GraphQL executor. Okay. And we wrap all of the resolvers at the time we boot the server in these authentication functions. So we have a bunch oh. of custom authentication functions so that we So Bustle, you're essentially extending GraphQL. Yeah, I mean, it's, it looks the same to the, the end user, but it allows us in our server implementation to actually write these custom authentication functions. They're co-located with how you get the data. So okay. am I authorized to look at this data? And where does it, do I get this data? Are in the same file, same place. All right. Allows you to do it all there. Fair I, enough. As far as I know, other people are doing that. There's been some people that have suggested alternatives or ways to extend GraphQL, the actual spec, mm -hmm. in order to support this, but nothing's really gotten a lot of traction there. Facebook kind of, you know, has control over that. Yeah. And takes In the it end, they're still the dictator for life. It's just an open source project. You yes. know, unless you're going to fork it and stay forked. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that stuff's rapidly evolving that I wouldn't really want to do that. Yeah, sure. No, it, it, exactly. And it sounds like you've got a fair bit of momentum here. Like, there's a lot of people working on this thing now. There's a ton. And yeah. there's even other startups that have kind of come out of the woodwork and are working specifically on GraphQL problems or their other products around GraphQL. There's a couple of services that are like Firebase, like backend as a service, but right. sure. just using GraphQL as the method of talking to the server. Because it doesn't strike, it's, this strikes me so much as a brownfield technology. It's like you have a problem, you have many generations of APIs, you've got a, a large set there, and you're just trying to make them more manageable and, then, and not punish yourself for legacy. Yeah. So it's like it's, it almost seems like this, nothing that a startup would need. I think as a startup, it's really easy to start doing things that you'll probably regret later. Sure. <laughs> uh, I've been one of those I'm, people. That's never happened to me. No, no, goodness. <laughs> I've definitely been one of those people. It's easy to just dump an entire row from a table and return that to the user. Hey, select star, dude. Like, here you go. <laughs> yeah, and say, this, this is our API. Now you have access to it. Yeah. GraphQL, I think, does not have that much overhead, but it gets you all this stuff that you're going to want to sure. get later. And, and do you think it's easier to start with it rather than try and retrofit it in? Like, is that is that a huge bar? No, I don't think so. We we did that at Bustle. We retrofitted it sure. in. We we essentially made a new GraphQL API and we started wrap, wrapping legacy services in it. Hmm. So that was one of the concepts around my talk today mm -hmm. here at NDC. Yeah. I was talking about how. GraphQL allowed us to really move onto serverless platforms. Nice. We were already okay. headed in that direction, but we had to figure out how to move off some legacy stuff. And we took really three approaches to that. There was, you know, obviously building new APIs, which is easy to do. Mm -hmm. uh, wrapping legacy APIs, which GraphQL also makes pretty easy. Right. You can describe how you want the API to look in GraphQL and just make the appropriate backend calls. And then the third one is actually doing imports of data through GraphQL. 
So this is something where eventually, even with wrapping legacy services, we ran into times where cruft is cruft, yep. bad data is bad data. <laughs> yep. and Doesn't matter how pretty a bow you put on it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a problem. So we have a few of those cases, and the way we were able to get out of that is we actually imported data into our new systems using GraphQL, and that's where the types come in. Nice. Is we're saying go through all the legacy data, import it all into the new system, and if there's bad data in there, GraphQL will just reject it. And that keeps our new environment nice and pristine and clean and... Without having to clean everything out, too. Exactly. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is oh, now? Not, it must be that happy time again. You got it. It's time to implement a GraphQL API using email <laughs> for the Cubans. Nice. For the Cubans. For the Cubans. Actually, it's time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Don Carroll. Congratulations, Don. Yeah. All clap for you, sir. Absolutely. Don just won the D-Experience subscription from DevExpress just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .NETrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. You know, we have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And we like to ask our guest, Steve, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology right now, what do you think you'd buy? Right now, it would definitely be some pretty nice camera gear. Mm, uh, yeah, you can always spend money on good camera gear. We're here in Norway, and I'm just walking around, and I'm looking at all the scenery. Mm. It's really gorgeous, and I don't have a camera with me, and I'm like, wow, I really wish I had one right and now. And the phone's not enough. Yeah, you want it, better than that. It doesn't quite capture the... What do you have back home? Uh, I had some Canon gear, but I actually just got rid of it. I, huh. I, I've been playing with a friend's Fuji, yeah, and I'm getting really into that. And so I sold all my Canon gear in anticipation of buying some Fuji gear at some point. And now mm. you're sort of between cameras at this point. Exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah, five grand on Fuji gear, you'd pretty much be loaded up. I, I think uh. I would do pretty well. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I don't, you don't think of, uh, of Fuji as the uh, standard SLR stuff either, right? It's, it tends to be Canon Nikon, but uh, they're all... Well, everybody's that it, it surprised me. I was a Canon person for a long time. Sure. Can't and go wrong, right? It's a, sort of the IBM of cameras. Exactly. It was all great. And then I, I didn't even know Fuji was like into SLRs. And then mm. I had a friend that got one and I started playing with it. And I was like, wow, this is like really crazy nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I started looking around online. It turns out I missed the boat. Fuji got into SLRs quite a while ago. Right. And they are now very popular and rapidly gaining wow. on Canon and Nikon. And the price is right? Is that the idea? Yeah. Uh, the price is, you know, similar. And, you know, it's Fuji. It's a little bit smaller. They don't quite have all of the lenses and all of the stuff you're going to have for Canon and Nikon. Sure. But the, I've been impressed. It's just really easy to take a really good photo. Well, and they've really focused on just the mirrorless stuff too, right? Yeah. Like we keep calling them SLR and they're not really, there's no mirror flipping back and forth. Exactly, the right. Yeah. It's, it's all, digital all the way. It's all mirrorless. Yeah. As well, it should be. Like it's kind of silly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're yeah. not looking through a viewfinder. You don't need a mirror. <laughs> like, exactly. So of all the languages that you can use with GraphQL, what are ones that we should stay away from? <laughs> languages you should stay away in from. In other words, which ones aren't implemented completely yet or, you know, have... That's a good question. I, I you know, I'm hesitant to uh, crap all over some other languages, right? Every time I come to a conference and I make a quirk about some of the language, somebody yeah. always comes up to me at the end of my talk. Well, don't, it isn't about the language. Don't call their baby ugly. <laughs> isn't yeah. it a, more about the GraphQL implementation over that language, not the language itself? Yeah, that's true, right? It's, it's the language itself... The, somebody in the community has to go across, come right. across and make a mm -hmm. implementation. So you're using C Sharp mostly? No, no we're all you're, Node. You're, you're all Node. Yeah, so we use JavaScript the reference all the way. Yep. Okay. Which is the reference implementation. Yes. Yeah, okay. 
but there I did find the the open source library for uh, for GraphQL Net, which is yeah. mapping GraphQL to iQueryable. So okay, you know it's been implemented. It's only eight contributors, but it's you know, fairly current mm -hmm. contributions the past couple of months. Somebody came up to me after my talk and was telling me about it and said really? it's really good. Working happily with it. Yeah. Because well, on the surface, as soon as I hear Facebook, I think this is part of that sort of React community. Yes. That it's React.js with Relay and GraphQL. Like they all sing and dance. As long as you are all in the ecosystem, you should be fine. Yep. Mm. It, it's one of the dangers. It's one of the things that actually concerns me about this. I think you know, developer monoculture can be a thing and mm -hmm. it can lead to bad places. Sure. Well, it, and it's just, you know, foolishly limiting. Then one tip over, you know, one bad thing happens, you know, maybe this, we discover a major vulnerability in the mm. V8 engine and suddenly mm. JavaScript's a problem yeah. and the whole world comes unglued for you. Yeah. And I, I don't, not that I think that's likely, but I'm just saying, like, the more we can keep that culture diverse and these pieces are used in different ways, we might learn new things about them, too. Well, and then there's good sides to having monocultures, even though, you know, there are downsides as well. It's a double-edged sword. It definitely is. Well, yeah. I think one of the reasons React and GraphQL both have become so big is because of Facebook, and they're pushing it very hard. Sure. They have people working full-time on it, uh, just yep. writing open source. And in a lot of ways, no different than what's happening with .NET Core. And, you know, Apple, Microsoft's got all these developers that work full-time on what happens to be an open source project. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that other people can contribute to. But for the most part, you're going to see Microsoft people doing the contributions. Is that pretty much what you see at, the, at least the core level of, uh, of GraphQL? It's yeah. Mostly, it's mostly Facebook folks. Yes, I would say that's true. Mm -hmm. So I, I've seen some other people make contributions, but it's mostly Facebook people. And, and part of the challenge there is when you have an organization moving that quickly, that focused, is there anything you can contribute? Like they have a roadmap and you know, where do you go? So that's a little bit of where the community at currently is slightly at odds with Facebook. Is my understanding is that Facebook has much of the stuff the community wants available already internally. Right. And then it's just not at the point where they're comfortable open sourcing it yet. Wow, interesting. Mm. Um, so something I talked about, I think, briefly was query complexity, right? Yep. So yeah. you can make these really complex queries with GraphQL. My understanding is Facebook has methods of dealing with that internally, but we just don't know what they are yet. Interesting. Like they see it as a competitive asset of theirs. They don't want to share with the open source community? Uh, maybe. I think it's just different teams, you know, different people working on different stuff. Is it like a fluent interface? You know, this, dot, that, dot, this, dot, that? Or, or how is it more like link where you have uh, keywords? What, what does the language look like? For GraphQL? Yeah. Um, it, it kind of looks like JSON. So yeah. the, the writing the actual uh, writing the actual schema is both, um, there's ways to do it in the native language of the runtime. So I'm sure .NET has its own way of doing it. JavaScript yep. has its own way of doing it. But usually these implementations also are capable of taking the language agnostic schema, um, I can't remember what they call it exactly, but like GraphQL language, yeah. right. and translating that into the native calls, like the native constructors and classes. Yeah, and mapping all the query role, that kind of thing. So, but on the client, on the client side, is it a? Do you use a, f a fluent? Uh, the client side language is similar to JSON as well. It's based on brackets, oh, okay. and you actually just specify these like nested JSON structures essentially. All right. Mm -hmm. right? They're, they're essentially JSON without any values, right? It's mm. just keys. It's a bunch yeah. of keys yeah. that you're specifying and something looks like JSON. Sure. And yeah. then it, but it will bring back sets of data if you want it to. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Cool. Yeah. The atomic sort of structures. Uh, that's, to me, very compelling. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, I know this is about querying, but at the same time, I really think about the show we did a while ago with Vishwas talking about the API management yeah. side of things. Right. Like, did this... Well, it may not be the focus that Facebook has on it, but just the same way you've been pressing against identity, yeah. suddenly to be pressed against um, you know, some kind of account token so that you could, you could charge or you could limit number of queries per account, like mm. the, the kinds of things that, that cripple an API when you expose it to the wild and you're not Facebook. You don't have an infinite supply of resources. You don't only want to limit so many calls or you don't want a badly behaved app to knock down everybody trying to call your API. Yeah. It's definitely a concern, especially with GraphQL, giving a lot of freedom to the client about right. how it gets what it wants from the server. There are people who have demonstrated, you know, it's possible to write these really complex queries that could really bring down your server. Basically DDoS the machine with an expression. Yeah. <laughs> this is another thing that Facebook, my understanding, you know, is they have some internal ways of dealing with us hmm. that they haven't open sourced yet. And there's nothing in the reference implementation or in the GraphQL spec that deals with this at all. Interesting. So it's kind of up to the backend developer to actually figure this out. So in Bustle's case, what we actually do is we 
in the course of a request, just have a counter that's keeping track of how many times we've talked to Redis, how many round trips we've done, right. and how many commands we've executed in those round trips. And at some point, it gets to a number, and then it returns to the user and says, sorry, your query got too complex. We stopped it. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so a kind of query governor. Yeah. yeah. But you, you do start the process. You, you're, not, you're not previewing the entire statement and saying, well, how complex is it going to be? You're going to try it up to a certain point and go, enough. We don't do that at Bustle, but I know other people that do that, where they try to statically analyze the query uh, for a certain, um, to get the complexity. Get a sense mm -hmm. of cost. Yeah. yeah. It's difficult to do entirely because sometimes you know we have list of objects and you're requesting nested structures in there. You don't know how many things are going to be returned. Sure, yeah. especially, right. especially when you start nesting deeply. Yeah, you know it can get pretty gruesome. Exactly, and you kind of don't know what the multipliers look like there. If, right, you know yeah. you don't know how many. Well, next thing you know, you're reinventing the the this the the RDMS with its index hinting and so mm. forth. It's <laughs> like, well, there's not many of that, not many of that, and you can start doing the math around. It's like, holy cow, how did I end up here? I think the <laughs> best solution will end up being doing both. There's yeah, going to be some yeah. static analysis that happens to say this query is too complex or you nested it in a weird way that we know is going to be bad. Yeah. And then also doing runtime checking and saying, okay, we tried your query. Yeah. We got halfway through and yeah, we're it's like not going to Now we've decided you're evil and that's the end of that. <laughs> yep. Oh, but again, you can you play the game of, oh, I have a premium account, so you will be able to do that deeper, heavier, costly query because you're paying for it. Yeah. So, but I, yeah, again, it's, I don't know that Facebook's motivated by any of that, but I could see plenty of other people caring about that. It, I think it, it's reflected in the fact that it seems Facebook invented this for some very specific reasons, mm -hmm. uh, specifically around making their clients easier to write, you know, making the documentation right. kind of more Managing the legacy yep. stores. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so... Now, it's solved a bunch of those problems very quickly and very well for us, but then you have these additional problems that it's brought on board, and you have right. to figure out how to deal well, with Well, and what two. a community ultimately wants. Like, what, where, where is the point, you know, this is whole conversation in, with book authors, like once the book is published, it's kind of owned by the readers now. It's their interpretation and their utilization. Right. And then you've put this out in open source. We're using it in ways you haven't thought of. It's also ours. You know, we're part of this as well and can take it in different directions. Yeah. It, it's something that hasn't been much of an issue yet, but it could potentially become an issue in the future. Well, and, you know, we're coming from the, from a Microsoft world where we're used to the old diagram where it's like circles with, with guns pointed at each <laughs> yeah. other, yeah. and Microsoft's worked really hard to go away from that. But, Stephen, you've said a couple of things along the way here about different times teams inside of Facebook that make me hint, like, there's a struggle inside of Facebook around stuff like this that somebody's developed a cool piece of that, but it's not part of the open source version. Like, that to me is very interesting. It, it speaks to the humanity of Facebook, too. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't have anything concrete. It's mostly through, you know, whispers in the community. In yeah. But you, you just hear about, well, you know, we really want this out of GraphQL, and, you know, somebody will be like, oh, well, that that exists, but it's just not open source. Right. And, you know, right. You know, you'll hear right. about stuff like that. Uh, you know, having dealt closely with Microsoft and those kinds of issues, there's certain catchphrases we're aware of. Yeah. When you say something to a Microsoft team that they've already thought about, fought about, disagreed on, and they're mm -hmm. looking for feedback to reinforce one way or the other, when you say the right thing, they go, that's good feedback. Yeah. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a secret for, I've already said that, they disagree with me, now you've supported me, so thank you. Yeah. Right. And yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think I suspect you're seeing that kind of thing inside of a company as large as Facebook where there are different teams with differing opinions. I think and that's it, definitely yeah, true. Pushing around on that sort of stuff. Yeah. So a very interesting uh, situation to get to. And just and in some ways kind of relieving to know that, ah, big companies, they all have big company problems. Are there, are there any gotchas getting started or is it pretty straight ahead? Getting started is pretty easy. Yeah. It's, there is not a lot going on there. Uh, setting up a simple server, responding with some types, making some queries is great. Probably demos like a dream. No problem at well, all. Well, that's part of it. I think that's why it's been picking up adoption so rapidly. Graphical is awesome. Yep. Yeah. You can have something stood up that and say, like, look, this works really well, and our front-end developers are using it, and like, it's really easy to get Everybody's that like, happy. first little yeah, bit. Right, We're right. singing Kumbaya. So, so what I hear you maybe are going to say <laughs> next is, it's when it gets complex that it, where the you know what hits the fan. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a concern. Um, when you first start getting into some of these production issues, query complexity I mm -hmm, talked about as mm -hmm. an issue, authorization's an issue, 
Uh, figuring out how to do efficient things with GraphQL sometimes can be an issue. Okay. So GraphQL, it's it's up to the ref, it's up to the language specific implementation yeah. how it resolves these queries, right? So the spec is just about the language of you know how do I make and receive these queries. Mm -hmm. In the JavaScript one, it resolves them with promises and right. in a parallel. So you, you might request the author's name and their ID and their email and their image profile URL. Sure. And the naive thing that will happen is you will make four different database requests. Right. So there are some other projects, also by Facebook, one being Data Loader. Mm -hmm. There's a .NET implementation of Data Loader that help you kind of automatically batch some of these queries or try to do some things intelligently. Okay. I think that's usually the first gotcha people run into is they start doing GraphQL and they realize they're making a lot of database queries unnecessarily. Right, and mm -hmm. a lot of excess round trips and yep. a lot of waiting around. Because so, that's what they're used to. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's the way we're used to writing APIs. And then I guess if you're coming from, you know, a bunch of different REST APIs, you're you're probably not any more or less efficient than you were before. But with GraphQL, I think you can do some very efficient things. I'm a little bit surprised data loader is not just part of GraphQL because yeah. it mm. it really is something I think anybody using GraphQL should be using data loader. I I really don't see a reason why you wouldn't want to be using it. Okay. Yeah, very interesting. And, and immediately I go, let's go look at the contributors to Data Loader versus yeah. the contributors to GraphQL and say, are these different teams? Like, same sort of thing. It's like, what's the separation between them or mm -hmm. how are they related to each other? Uh, Data Loader is an interesting project. You know, GraphQL under the hood is complicated and there's a lot of code there. Sure. Data Loader is only about 300 lines of code. And if you're somewhat familiar with Node, it's really not hard to understand. Very straightforward. Okay. And it, sure. it essentially just schedules all of... You, you give it a bunch of promises and it schedules them all to resolve on the next event loop. Right. Okay. And so uh, by doing that, it can then batch them all up into one request. Nice. They make one round trip. Yeah, it's it's not a complicated thing. I think it's a very clever thing. Yeah, so. it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And and then you'd see how a .NET incarnation of that would end up in callbacks yep. or... Async await. And async await response. There are solutions yeah. one way or the other. And again, it's like you can do the naive thing and have each one separate or you could just be a little more patient, package it up and make one trip. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, very, very, very compelling cool. sort of stuff. Uh, exciting times for you guys. It sounds very cool. And obviously, you've come at this purely from the JavaScript perspective. Yeah. I, I wonder, th this also strikes me as something that would allow us to absorb other platforms on the back end in an easy way. Abstract typing, if you had, say, an old set of Java-based services, like yeah. you, I could wrap this up in, in, in GraphQL and just simplify things for folks. Yeah. Yep, that's something we've done a lot with at Facebook. Our original APIs were all in Rails. We have a couple uh, other just pure Ruby APIs. So we're able to wrap those in GraphQL and then we had some different strategies. We did like dual writes, we did some copy on write stuff. Sure. Where we're actually moving data out of those old uh, systems. Right, start building new versions in new platforms and they don't have to tell anybody. It's called this GraphQL in the end. So are you exactly. talking about taking somebody's existing API that's not yours and making a sort of a proxy for it? Is that what you're talking about? Because that's a pretty interesting idea. No, this has mostly been internally that we've just been using our own legacy APIs. Right. We yeah. haven't really done it with third-party stuff. Um, that said, Bustle actually did just acquire a company a few months ago, hmm. and we've had the need to get all of their content into our platform. Hmm. The way we're going about that, though, is through the, uh, I talked about import mutations. So right. we've actually written these special uh, mutations that their team is using to import data into our system rather than trying to proxy their API or do something like that. I just like that seamless migration aspect that you can shift stuff around and, and to the outside world, it makes no difference. Definitely. So we've done that internally. We've switched databases behind GraphQL nice. for some parts of it uh, no, pretty I, seamlessly. I love everything about so that. I'm thinking about m my example earlier, which, which was I was working with the Google Drive API and you know finding not finding a lot of good examples, having to go to blog posts and things like that. If you could take, you know, so it's obviously on a, doesn't seem like Google is going to implement, uh, you know, GraphQL in their libraries anytime soon. So, could you do that? Could you actually set up your own service and your own REST service and wrap all their stuff, as long as you kept the proper state and uh, and then created a GraphQL. Yeah. For your own client. You definitely could. I've seen that, not for Google, but I have seen that for other things where people have tried to take existing APIs and wrap them up appropriately. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not their API. Yeah, Somebody it's not their else's. API. Yeah. Just saying this is a better way of doing it. Um, I actually did that myself uh, one time just as like a toy. The Philadelphia Museum of Art, where I live in Philly, yeah. has uh, an API that is just a very generic JSON REST API. 
and I was sort of annoyed that I couldn't query it the way I wanted it to. <laughs> and, and it was a little bit difficult. So I rewired it. <laughs> I did. <laughs> they, they had a hackathon, and uh, I didn't really participate in the hackathon part, but I did the first day. I, I sent an email to all the teams, and I said, hey, I, I essentially put a GraphQL wrapper around the uh, PMA API uh, just so it's easier to work with and easier to explore and stuff like that. I actually have no idea if anybody used it. Yeah, that's yeah. Pretty cool. But it was... But an, an interesting thing for when you did want to experiment with a new API or something, if you put this wrapper on it, because the exploration is so easy and testing so easy mm. and your span of dev language just got larger, like it seems like a really good practice, actually. Yeah. Very compelling. Yeah, pretty cool. So what's on your radar? What's next for you, man? Uh, next for me, well, I'm, I'm here in Norway. I'm going to the coast uh, for a couple days. Nice. To go just explore that. First time at NDC? Yeah, first well, time at NDC. First you made time it in here. Norway. So you're going to fly out to Bergen then? Yeah. yeah. So I'm taking the train out to Bergen. Okay. It's a long ride, actually. Yeah. You'll enjoy it. It's uh, beautiful. I, that's what I've heard. And yeah. that's, I just wanted to get on a train and hang out for a few Can hours. Can I go f uh, for a fjord tour yeah. out there? Yeah. Do a little fjord hopping. Yeah. And then I'm flying to Amsterdam for a day. Nice. I've um, got a friend there. And then going home and just continuing to, I don't know, write more code. Yep. Get back to work. Awesome. Steve, thanks very much for talking to us today. Of course. It was great. And uh, yeah, I apologize for my slow start there, but I, 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 I hope I was helpful for no, those that were No, listening. this is great. You guys did a good job of like asking the right questions, so I feel like I could cover all the, the bits. And now I feel like I could use this stuff and actually do something good with it. So thanks. Cool. All right. We'll see you next time on Talks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a